Please take your Bibles and turn with me to Ephesians chapter 5. As you know, I've been preaching a series of messages entitled, A Call for Men to be Godly. It's been an exhortation for men to be spiritually mature, to be growing, to be zealous for the things of God by being sexually pure men, spiritually industrious men, sober and sober-minded men, spirit-filled men, loving men, and in recent weeks I've been calling us as men to be loving husbands. Look with me at Ephesians chapter 5. We'll be looking in particular at verses 28 to 33 this morning, but let's briefly review what we've seen so far in this passage, beginning in verse 25. Husbands, love your wives. Husbands, love your wives. And here we saw the command, the command for men to love their wives. Men, your leadership, your headship in the home and in the marriage relationship is to be loving leadership. For love is the environment where a marriage can grow. And therefore, you husbands, create, foster, and maintain an environment and atmosphere of love in your relationship with your wife and in your home. Choose to love your wife now, the apostle is saying. And choose to continue to love your wife at all times, in every circumstance, and with no conditions. This was the command that we've seen in verse 25. But then we saw the example of love, the love of Jesus Christ for his bride, the church. Husbands, love your wives, and here's the example, just as Christ loved the church. And so the call is to follow the example of Christ. Husbands, you're to love your bride in the manner that Jesus loved his church. Your love for her is to be in the manner and in the likeness of the degree that Christ loved and loves his bride, the church. And so we saw the example of love, the Lord Jesus and his love for his bride, the church. Then last week, we began to consider the description of this husband's love for his wife. It is to be a sacrificial love at the end of verse 25. It says that Jesus gave himself up for her, for the church, his bride. Christ's love for us was a sacrificial and redeeming love. And while our love for our wives is not redemptive and sacrificial in that way, it is to be sacrificial in that we are to give up of ourselves for the sake of our wives. Men, if you're to love your wife sacrificially, then you must be willing to live selflessly, foregoing and forfeiting your own interests for the sake of your wife and for her spiritual good. And when tempted with pride and selfishness, men look to Christ who willingly humbled himself for his bride. As I asked you last week, if Christ so loved us, should we not love our wives sacrificially and selflessly? If the Son of God humbled himself not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many, Can we not humble ourselves and love and serve our wives? Must we be exalted when Christ was so humbled? 
And so when tempted to justify our lack of love or even our sins like impatience and anger, because you think, or I think, that we think our brides have acted unbecomingly, consider the church, this sinful bride. Consider yourself and how you fall short. And yet Christ has loved His church sacrificially. He has loved you sacrificially. Look to Christ, men, and sacrifice for your wife's spiritual good. But then we saw that this love is described this way. It is a particular love. Christ gave himself up for her, his bride. Christ's love was an exclusive love for his church. Yes, he is benevolent and kind to all in various ways, but this is a particular and exclusive love that he sets upon his bride. And we saw from this that husbands, we too are in covenant relationship with a particular woman. She's your wife, and your love for her is to be a particular, unique, and exclusive love. So don't violate that love. And that mirrors covenant through adultery. Be devoted to her and love her alone. Fix your eyes on your bride and fix your love on your bride. And then we saw that this love is to be a sanctifying love in verses 26 and 27. He sets his love on this bride, it says, so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be made holy and blameless. And we saw how this is really a comprehensive statement of Christ's love for his bride in such a way that he sets her apart unto himself, he sanctifies her, and he is working in his bride so that one day in glorification on the final day she'll have no spot or wrinkle. It's a comprehensive statement of Christ sanctifying his bride. He makes his bride holy and in like manner Husbands, your love for your wives is to be a sanctifying love. You're to be used as an instrument of God for her practical holiness. And even as Christ's love for us is sanctifying, so your love for your wife is to be for her spiritual sanctification and holiness. It is to be a sanctifying love. Now this morning, consider this description of your love for your wife. It is to be also a nurturing love. A nurturing love. Look at verse 28. So husbands, also, or so husbands ought also to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but... Here's the word, nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church, because we are members of his body. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and shall be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is great, but I'm speaking with reference to Christ and the church. Nevertheless, each individual among you also is to love his own wife even as himself, and the wife must see to it that she respects her husband. 
In these verses, we see that our love for our wives, men, is to be a nurturing love. It is to be a love that cherishes her. And in verse 28, he says, So husbands ought also to love their own wives. The word so here could be translated in this way, pointing back to verses 25 to 27. And while he then goes from there and even explains in more depth what that looks like. And you notice that Paul repeats what he has previously said. He repeats the exhortation, the command for husbands to love their wives. But notice that here in verse 28, he adds the word own, not just love your wives, but love your own wives. Again, emphasizing this exclusive, particular, unique covenant relationship and therefore the love that that grows out of that and springs from that relationship. But then Paul does something even more. He strengthens what he has said in verse 25, and he expands on it. Now, how does the apostle strengthen the instruction he's just given? It's been very strong, we would say, and clear in many ways. But he strengthens it in this way. He now adds a word that speaks of an obligation, of a duty. It's, been a, it's an obligation in the sense that it was a command, but now he says in verse 28, so husbands ought also to love their own wives. And that word ought is a very important word. It means that this is a moral obligation. The word ought, the Greek word behind this English word here, means to be under obligation. It means it's of absolute necessity. It carries the idea of duty. Now you might ask the question, is loving my wife nothing more than duty? And you can use the word duty with a negative connotation. But Paul is not appealing to husbands on the basis of of just loving them out of duty with a negative connotation. No, he is bringing to bear upon men who are husbands of the moral obligation before God to which they are accountable to God that they ought, they must love their wives and do it in the way that is described here. Paul is not saying here you ought to. It's just a a duty. You just have to because this is what it means. No, he's bringing a moral obligation to bear upon them. And he is saying to them, this is biblical principle. This is based on what God has created in marriage that then brings upon you this obligation, this oughtness that you must do this. It's very important because sometimes we can say, yes, but... I understand the love of my wife, but, and we've talked about this, we might use excuses like she's not very lovely right now. Our love is not based on the lovability of our wives or the loveliness of our wives or on their actions. No, we ought to love them. The church is an imperfect bride, but Christ is working to sanctify her in like manner. We ought to love our wives. It's not based on what she does. It's based on the moral obligation God has given to us, the moral responsibility God has given to us, the oughtness of this, that we must do this. This is what we commit to when we make those vows. 
when we entered into the marriage covenant. We would love her in every circumstance. That's why we don't want to get too cutesy, so to speak, with vows. We want to stick to those, those traditional vows are very much based on Scripture. We need to vow biblical truths to one another that proclaim what marriage is and the roles in marriage. And, and men, it really hinges on us, the oughtness, the moral obligation we have to love our wives in this way. So the Apostle Paul is bringing, he's strengthening it, he's saying husbands ought also to love their wives as their own bodies. And what he describes here is really, again, under that category of a loving husband, that you nurture her and you cherish her. Look again at the words of verses 28 and 29. So husbands ought also to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ also does the body. Paul is still pointing husbands to the love of Christ for his church. Christ loves his church like his own body. The church is in covenant relationship with Jesus Christ. As such, we are united with Christ in our union with Him in such a way that we are one with Him. It is what the old writers again would call that mystic sweet communion. There is a spiritual oneness that we have with Christ. We are united with Christ. We are in union with Christ. And it is that spiritual union from which all the blessings of salvation flow. Christ treats his church as if she were flesh of his flesh, bone of his bones, as if the church were his own body. And isn't that the analogy that's used in Scripture? He is head of the body. And we're to grow up into him who is the head, Colossians 1.18 and Ephesians 4, verse 15. We are members of his body, and Christ. Love for us is a love likened to his love for himself. Listen to John 17, verse 23. When he prays for the disciples and those who would believe because of their word, namely the church, he says, I in them and you in me, when the Son prays to the Father, that they may be perfected in unity so that the world may know that you sent me and you love them even as you have loved me. So what is happening in this prayer is we're getting some insight into the love of the Father for the Son. It's an eternal love. And even before creation, there was this love of Father and Son and the triune Godhead and His fellowship among them. And now in redemption, the love the Father has for the Son is now being set upon a bride. Those whom He would redeem to the glory of His name. This is a great mystery. And by the way, this is part of the argument that the Apostle Paul uses, that we are one with Christ, that we are a part of his body, that we have this union with Christ that, that really is beyond our full comprehension. It's part of the argument that Paul uses, for example, in 1 Corinthians 6, verses 15 to 17, against sexual immorality. Listen to what he writes there. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? 
Shall then I take away the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? May it never be. Or do you not know that one who joins himself, notice the language here, here speaking of a sexual union, joins himself to a prostitute, is one body with her, for it says the two shall become one flesh. But the one who joins himself to the Lord is one spirit with him. And part of what Paul is doing is saying, you've been so joined with Christ, how can you join yourself with a prostitute through sexual immorality? To do so would be inconsistent. You're one with your Savior. How can you now be one with that which is so, so unholy? The nature of the new covenant and our union with Christ and His church, the union of Christ and His church, is such that we are said to be one flesh with our Savior. The apostle speaks of that when he says in verse 32, this mystery is great, but I am speaking with reference to Christ in the church, that we are members of his body. Now he's, he's speaking of marriage, but he's saying there's this union that Christ has with his church, and from that we learn how God is glorified in this marriage that he has created to the glory of his name. For a husband to love his wife as Christ loves the church, he must in like manner, nurture and care for her as he would care for his own body. For Christ cares for us as if we were his own body. And so he says in verse 28, so husbands ought, you have this moral obligation, this is why God has created marriage and your role in marriage, that you would love your own wives as their own bodies, he says. He who loves his own wife loves himself. Now this commandment and obligation is similar to other commands in Scripture. To love your wife as your own body, to love your wife as yourself, is similar to commands like this. Luke 6.31, treat others in the same way you want to be treated. It's a similar principle. How would you want to be treated? By someone else, then treat them in like manner. And so it's similar in this sense. You're in this one flesh relationship, this covenant of marriage with your wife. Treat her as if she were your own body. How would you want to be treated by your wife? Men, do you want her to be unkind and unloving? Do you want her to be unforgiving? Do you want her to get angry with you? And or to be unfaithful to you? Do you want her to withhold affection when you're offended, when she's offended by something you've done, or to give you the cold shoulder? Of course not. Then how do you want to be treated? And don't you want to be treated by your wife with a sacrificial love, a particular exclusive love, a sanctifying love, a nourishing, cherishing, and caring love? Well, then treat your wives in like manner. The second great commandment is love your neighbor as yourself. But there's something different about this command. It's not just treat others the way you want to be treated and love your neighbor as yourself. But this is different. For in the marriage relationship, you're in this unique covenant, this one flesh relationship. 
Yes, you're to treat others the way you want them to treat you. You're to love your neighbor as yourself. But in the marriage relationship, you have this unique one flesh relationship. Husbands, you're to love your wives as your own bodies. This is something that's not said of any other relationship. And Paul will quote Genesis 2.24 later in the passage in verse 31. He's assuming knowledge of that passage. Listen to what it says in in Genesis 2, beginning in verse 21. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and he slept. Then he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh at that place. And the Lord God fashioned into a woman the rib which had been taken from the man and brought her to the man. The man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman. Isha is the the Hebrew word. Because she was taken out of man. Man is ish. For this reason a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife and they shall become one flesh. He just quotes that verse, Genesis 2.24, assuming the knowledge of the context that when God created, as we say, our first parents, Adam and Eve, He created Adam. It wasn't good for him to be alone. He caused him to fall into a deep sleep. And he literally took a rib from Adam and he fashioned God in his creative work a woman. Again, the Hebrew word for man here is ish. And woman is isha. She came from you. Eve was created from a rib from Adam. She was taken out of Adam. Woman was taken out of man. And in this sense, she was one flesh with him. Now men, your wives may not have been taken out of you. (laughs) But your marriage relationship is so unique that it is in likeness of that first union considered a one flesh relationship. Your wives, husbands, are bone of your bones, flesh of your flesh, by way of this unique covenant relationship called marriage that God has created for His glory. And so Paul is taking all of that and he's saying, Husbands, love your wives as your own body. For he who loves his wife loves himself. See how he's strengthening this? He's pointed to Christ and he's still pointing to Christ's love for his church and how we are in union with him in this relationship that is unique. And he is saying from that, from the greater to the lesser, now understand the creation of marriage in the beginning. That woman was taken out of man. And now marriage is that kind of relationship, that it is a one flesh relationship, not just a reference to the sexual union, but the oneness of that relationship. And from that, he says, you're to love her as your own bodies. Now, I need to pause here to address one way that this passage, along with other passages, are sometimes twisted and misunderstood. In Titus 1.9, in the qualification of pastors, it says this of them, holding fast the faithful word, which is in accordance with the teachings, so that 
he will be able both to exhort in sound doctrine and to refute those who contradict. And so I need to just pause and, and just briefly, I think it would be important to refute kind of a common interpretation of passages like this and the other ones I've read, Love Your Neighbors Yourself. There's been much twisting of this passage in Ephesians and twisting of the second commandment to love your neighbors as yourself. And here's the false teaching. It says this, basically, we can't love God or others or our wives without loving ourselves first. And then they quote the scriptures, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And they'll say things like this. The greatest problem is a failure to love yourself. And you need to love yourself so that then you can love your neighbor as yourself and you can love your wife as you love your own body. And so those who teach such things actually teach there there is an implied commandment in various passages or an understanding, implied understanding that we are to love ourselves and therefore we must first love ourselves and only then can we love God and love others. But this teaching really comes from the modern self-esteem movement and the teaching that not only pervades the culture but pervades even churches. The reality is in the Bible, there is no command to love yourself. Self-love is assumed. It is normal to take care of yourself. Every one of you who are here, when I look out, you, you look like you took care of yourself this morning. And you, you've done so. You've fed yourself. Or if you haven't, you will. And you nurture your body. You take care of yourself. It's abnormal not to take care of yourself. And scripture identifies as the real problem that we love ourselves too much, inordinately, or out of order. We, we, we love ourselves more than we love God. In 2 Timothy 3 verse 2, it says that in the last days, men will be lovers of self. But yet, true biblical love says, according to scripture, says that love does not seek its own. It's not self-focus. But in this twisted love of self and self-esteem teaching, it leads to this, that love of self becomes the foundation for loving God and then loving others. And some even would say, this is really the greatest commandment to love yourself. You remember the old song? I remember I was in, uh, I think about third grade when the teacher played this song. I don't know if it had just come out or, uh, but Uh, The song, Because the Greatest Love of All is Happening to Me. I found the greatest love of all inside of me. The greatest love of all is what? Is learning to love yourself. This has really become settled doctrine in the world, so to speak. And even in much of the visible church and the professing church. So that you have professing Christians teaching things like this, quote, you cannot love your neighbor, you cannot love God unless you first love yourself. Without self-love, there can be no love for others. Or this quote, actually our ability to love God and to love our neighbor is limited 
to our ability to love ourselves, we cannot love God more than we love our neighbor, and we cannot love our neighbor more than we love ourselves. And so in a twisted way, it says, focus on loving yourself, and then you can obey the commandment to love your neighbor as yourself. Robert Schuller really made this heresy uh, prominent in various ways. In 1982, that sounds like a long time, but this has been around a long time, and it continues to, again, be settled doctrine, so to speak, among many. He said in his book, Self-Esteem, The New Reformation, he said this, quote, Self-esteem or pride in being a human being is the single greatest need facing the human race today. Not to be reconciled to God, but self-esteem. He said this, sin is any act or thought that robs myself or another human being of his or her self-esteem. That's his definition of sin. And he goes on to say, what is hell? It is the loss of pride that naturally follows separation from God. The ultimate and unfailing source of our soul's sense of self-respect My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Was Christ's encounter with hell. In that hellish death, our Lord experienced the ultimate horror of humiliation, shame, and loss of pride as a human being. A person is in hell when he has lost his self-esteem. So then he defines being born again in this way. To be born again means that we must be changed from a negative to a positive self-image. From inferiority to self-esteem, from fear to love, from doubt to trust. And this is how he he defines regeneration. But to make it even worse, he says this, The cross sanctifies the ego trip. For the cross protected our Lord's perfect self-esteem from turning into sinful pride. I mean, what twisting of truth. So that in the end... He calls Jesus self-esteem incarnate. Now this takes so many forms in the, even the so-called evangelical church today where, I hate to say it, but I'll just say it. The chameleon Rick Warren wrote in the Ladies' Home Journal, Learn to Love Yourself. And he says, here's how you do it. Accept yourself, love yourself, be true to yourself, forgive yourself, believe in yourself. The problem is not that we esteem ourselves too little, but that we esteem ourselves too much. In our sinfulness, we exalt ourselves. And in doing so, we ignore the teaching about man that is true. We're made in his image. And that's where our value comes from. Because we're made in the image of God and we're now accountable to our God. And isn't it interesting that the world tries to lift up man through the self-esteem teaching while denying that there's a God, denying that man is made in the image of God, and teaching that we're really nothing more than more highly evolved animals. So they're inconsistent. They're, They're trying to Elevate self-esteem while they teach that we're really nothing more than evolved animals. When this spills over into the church, we twist the Bible to find something to validate this teaching of the world. 
People think of the Bible this way, all scriptures inspired by God to inspire me. Therefore, it's profitable for teaching me how valuable I am, reproving me when I damage my self-esteem and correcting me of wrong concepts of self-worth and training me in self-righteousness. It's what has been called, and I've called theological narcissism, where we, we use God to, to make t- uh, see ourselves too highly. Narcissism is when someone has too high of a view of their own importance. And this is a kind of theological narcissism. Self-esteem is exactly that, esteeming ourselves rather than esteeming God is seeking our own. And love is the opposite. So Paul here, some would read this and say, Paul is saying, men, you need to love yourselves. And the problem, they would say, just like today in culture, you hear that the problem with everything is they have a low self-esteem. They have a low self-esteem. If they esteem themselves more, then they won't do drugs. They won't commit these crimes. They, they need to see that they're of value. And this is twisted and brought into passages of Scripture like this. It says, men, you need to love yourself. And then you'll be able to love your neighbor. Then you'll be able to love your wife as you love your own body. Now, Paul is just stating what is fact. That we take care of ourselves, we nurture ourselves. Lou Priolo in his book, The Complete Husband, speaks in an example. And he asks the question, how many of you, when you, if you cut your finger, don't immediately grab it and go take care of it? That's your natural response, right? You just don't say, oh, I'm going to bleed to death. No big deal. No, you value yourself. You, you cut your finger. You want to protect yourself. You nurture that wound. That's our natural response because we do love ourselves. We do care for ourselves. So Paul is not talking about a narcissistic self-love. He explains what he means in verse 29. No one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church. So Paul's defining this kind of love for oneself in these terms. You nourish and you cherish your own flesh. And Paul is simply stating that we naturally take care of ourselves. Self-love is not commanded, it's assumed. On the one hand, it's normal to take care of yourself. There's a universal desire to care for oneself. People don't typically, normally, naturally choose the maximum amount of pain. They don't typically, normally, naturally hate themselves. They nourish themselves, they feed themselves, they cherish themselves. Someone might say, well, what about suicide? How many times have you actually heard someone say that in the end they think this would be best for me if I ended my life? In a twisted way, they're thinking, because they're not thinking rightly, that this would be best for me if I ended my life. Suicide is actually people thinking wrongly about themselves. They convince themselves that this is the best thing for themselves. So Paul says, no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it. It's good and holy to feed yourself, to protect yourself, to take care of yourself. And in like manner, men, you should take care of your wife and so love her. Notice the two words, nourishes and cherishes. 
The word nourish here means, it's used of, of literally feeding the body. But it's also used of rearing children. This is the word that's used of bringing up your children in Ephesians 6, 4. You, you rear them, you bring them up, you care for them, you nourish your children. And then the word for cherish is the idea of tenderly caring for. By the way, the word here translated nourish in the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, it's used in Psalm 23, verse 2, when it says that he leads, that's the word, leads me beside quiet waters. The picture is that God is nourishing and providing for his sheep. So the idea is that the husband here is comprehensively, caringly, compassionately, nurturing, leading, and loving his wife. And he's doing so by cherishing her, by tenderly, kindly, gently caring for her. She's not your maid. She's not your personal chef. She's your wife, that one flesh companion. In this covenant of marriage, and this means that you care for her greatly. It means you protect her. If someone messes with your wife, what do you want to do? When there's a bump in tonight, how many of you in the night, how many of you men pull the cover over your head and say, honey, go see what it is? <laughs> and we'll talk about this when we talk about strong men, but loving and strong men, they go together. Say, so my wife is to be protected and nourished and cared for. And when there's something that makes a noise downstairs in another room, a man who is following Christ says, he pulls off the, the blankets and he goes. Not only his wife, but his children. And, and so he protects his wife. He cares for her. He's, this is love. This is what Christ does for his church. That's why it says, by the way, in 1 Corinthians 3.16, do you not know that you're the temple of God, talking about the church, and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? If any man destroys the temple of God, God will destroy him. For the temple of God is holy, and that is what you are. In other words, if you mess around with his bride, there's a holy, righteous jealousy for her. And it's godly for men to have that kind of protection and care for their wives in like manner as Christ does his bride, the church. Now, it needs to be a righteous indignation when someone harms your bride or speaks ill against your bride, used in such a way to protect her and care for her. But that is a normal and a good holy response because you want to nourish and cherish and protect your holy bride by covenant. John MacArthur put it this way, the husband who loves his wife as Christ loves the church will no more do anything to harm her than he would do to harm his own flesh. His desire is to nourish and cherish her just as he nourishes and cherishes his own body because that is how Christ also does the church. When she needs strength, he gives her strength. When she needs encouragement, he gives her that. And so would every other thing she needs. The blessed marriage is the marriage in which the husband loves his wife with unlimited caring. She is a God-given treasure to be loved, cared for, nourished, and cherished. And that is how you're to view your wives. 
And even when there's a need to correct your wife, you do it even as Christ does for us, for our spiritual good. When there's a need to correct your wife, you do it with patience and kindness and edifying words, not with harsh, impatient, angry words. We're to do it just as Christ, verse 29, also does the church. He nourishes and cherishes his bride, the church. Verse 30, for we are members of his body. And by weaving Christ and his church with the husband and his relationship to his wife, it causes us to ask these kinds of questions. Has Christ not nurtured and cared for you? Has he not loved you as his own body? Has he not sacrificed for your eternal good? Husbands, likewise do the same. Cherish your wife. Nurture her. Love her. For this is how you are to be loving husbands. Verse 31, For this reason a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is great, but I am speaking with reference to Christ and the church. Now Paul is not saying here that Genesis 2.24, that he's quoting in verse 30, is not really a reference to marriage, but only to Christ and his church. No, he's, he's saying marriage was created for God's glory. It's created to be a picture of Christ and his church. Our relationship is likened to that of that one flesh relationship we have in covenant union with Christ our head. And this is a great mystery, he says. Genesis 2.24 that he quotes here refers to marriage, but it also prefigures. Marriage prefigures, pictures, and illustrates Christ's relationship to his church. And just revel in that just a moment. It's not my main purpose this morning, but Christ and his church are forever bound by covenant, the new covenant in his blood. The church in Christ, Christ and his church, the two inextricably bound. And Christ and his church will be inextricably bound for all eternity in the eternal state. While marriage does not extend to eternity but ends with death, the covenant relationship of Christ and his church will have no end throughout all eternity. Christ and his church join together and it will always be so. No wonder nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ. But here again, weaving them together, the Apostle Paul is speaking in light of marriage For this reason, a man shall leave father and mother. You leave that nurturing household environment in which you've been brought up, and now you're joined to your wife, you're united with your wife. The two become one flesh, a a reference to the sexual union, but much more than that. This unity, this one flesh relationship of marriage, And so, men, we're to live in light of that. She's flesh of your flesh. She's bone of your bone. Taken out of Adam was Eve, and now marriage is a picture of that. As John Gill said, 
and shall cleave unto his wife with a cordial affection, taking care of her, nourishing and cherishing her, providing all things comfortable for her, continuing to live with her, and not depart from her as long as they live. The phrase is, in it, is expressive of the near union of marriage between man and wife. They are, as it were, glued together and made but one. The union being... The union between them is so close as if they were but one person, one soul, one body, in which is to be observed against polygamy, unlawful divorces, all uncleanness, fornication, adultery. Only one man and one woman join in the lawful wedlock, having a right of copulation with each other in order to produce a legitimate offspring. What a glorious relationship God has created. Men, do you nurture your wife as if she were your own flesh? For that is what she is in the covenant of marriage. And we fall short. We're sinners. We are not Christ in the sense that we are not perfect. But that's what we're called to. And this is what we ought to do. This is what God has called us to. And so as I said in this series of messages, this is a call, an exhortation, men. Be done with lesser things. And humble yourself and plead with God to so form you to the image of Christ that you would so nurture your wife and love her and provide that environment of love and that relationship that she would flourish spiritually. And she would grow to be, even as the church, a holy bride. Let's intercede for that. And let's pray for that. Let's bow our heads together in prayer. Our Father in heaven, we come before you as men, as husbands. And we are very aware of how we fall short, how we have acted sinfully, selfishly, how we have, Lord, placed the care of ourselves above all else, and Lord, even at times exalted ourselves above you, practically speaking. Father, I pray that we would do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, But with humility of mind, Lord, even as we apply this to mirrors, consider our wives more important than ourselves. And we would not merely look out for our own personal interests, but also for the interest of our wives. Father, I pray that our wives would would know that we cherish them and we love them, that we desire to nurture them and Lord, I pray that we as men, called to be strong protectors of the faith, protectors of our families, leaders in our homes, not weak, not cowardly, but Lord, at the same time, tender and caring and nurturing. Father, I pray that we would love our wives in this way and so reflect that wonderful love 
of our Savior for us and for His church. Father, I pray that we as men might humble ourselves before You. We would be those who even today, Lord, if we need to confess sin before You and to our wives, would confess our sin, our pride, our selfishness, our harshness, our sinful anger, our using our words to tear down rather than to build up. Father, I pray, humble us as men and help us to look to Christ who humbled himself for us and who nourishes and cherishes us, who sanctifies us, who has set his love upon us. Father, may we love in like manner for the spiritual good of our wives and Father, also for the testimony and witness that it is of your great love for your church, that it might point our children to Christ, that it might point our neighbors to Christ, that it might point the world to the Savior who so laid down his life for sinners. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.